This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hey, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, I'm so excited that today we get to have David Langford with us, and he's going to be talking about a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, and that's the work uh, and the man of Dr. W. Edwards Deming, which was the very first person to influence my career uh, 30 years ago. David, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're involved in today, and tell those that maybe don't know who was Dr. W. Edwards Deming? Okay, good enough. Uh, primarily, I, I am an educator. So, and uh, <clears throat> when, I, when I grew up in Southern Colorado, there were only two jobs that I knew of. Them. One of them was being a farmer, which my dad was a farmer, or being a teacher. And I knew I didn't want to be a, a, a farmer, so that's how I ended up being a teacher. So, and it was a great career. Um, my wife and I moved to Alaska in 1980. And uh, tell you that this is a background, but also ties into why I know dimming and how that worked. And in 1980, the oil money was pouring into the state coffers for the first time from Prudhoe Bay. And the state was spending money like crazy, like tripling all the teachers' salaries. And, and so it became this legendary place that you could go to make a lot of money if you're a teacher. So that, that's how my wife and I originally ended up there. But then by 1984, the state said, look, we're, we're pouring all this money into education. We have nothing to show for it. There's no, you know, no increase in test scores. No, there's nothing that we can point to. And we've even built hundreds and hundreds of new buildings for multi-millions multi and nothing's changing. <clears throat> so we need a new model. So a bunch of us uh, were tasked to come up with a new model for education. And... Uh, we did that and we got together and decided that the problem in education is not uh, um, this was not the students it's is really the parents and if we could have a school without parents then that would just be ideal <laughs> and uh, to do that we uh, created the first public boarding school yeah, in the united states uh, called mount edgecombe high school in sitka alaska and it's still in existence today and uh <clears throat> and the federal government gave, gave us a World War II Navy base to remodel and uh, turn that into school. So I tell you this story because we were going to solve all the ills of the education, right? We're going to make it perfect. And uh, in order to be perfect, we're going to do everything in the perfect way, right? We're going to have seven class periods a day, and we're going to be really strict with discipline, and we're going to have all these things. And uh, Somebody asked the superintendent, well, these kids don't have to be here because this is a boarding school and they come from all over the state. So what if they don't work hard here? What are we going to do with them? And he, he stepped real, stood up real straight and he said, well, we're going to send them home. After the first year, we had sent home 42 percent of the population. <laughs> and it became a great uh, joke around school. This will be a great place to work once we can get rid of all these kids. So. <laughs> and still today, uh, and I'm sure it's the same way in schools of medicine, we think we can improve things by eliminating the bad. 
or by trying to select people. But we don't typically think in terms of what Deming uh, taught, which is about, no, you have to improve the system by which things happen. So after the first year we had opened the school in, uh, so this was 1986, uh, the superintendent said, you know, we got to do something different because we're just a line item in the governor's budget. And if we can't, if this is the best we can do, we won't be here. None of us will have jobs, won't be here. So he said, just go anywhere you want and I'll pay for it. Any classes, any conferences, anything over the summer, but we, we have to do something different. So I'd finished my master's degree from Arizona State um, in 1984, and I remember I did, the, did this book report on this guy that was in the Vogue at the time, Dr. W. Edwards Deming. He was still alive, and so I called up his office and started talking to his secretary and said, you know, Jay, I'd like to meet him, and I had really I had no idea this is the world-renowned management guru. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, he's, all, he's kind of busy, but I'll talk to him, and anyway, Dr. Deming was an educator, taught for 42 years at New York University. And uh, so when he found out a fellow educator was interested in his management theories, he's, uh, the secretary called back and said, well, you can come to any of his conferences uh, for free and just, you know, just help out or whatever, but you can come and attend. I thought that was a pretty good idea because in 1986, his conferences were going for about $1,100 a pop, which was which now would be like $3 million a showing so. <laughs> uh, so I did that. And what I discovered when I got there, I thought I was going to hear all this stuff about manufacturing and I thought I was going to hear, uh, uh, you know, all this management theory. But what I found was an educator and a teacher and somebody that understood neuroscience. And he was trying to get managers of the day to try to understand how to manage a different result in the system. And so instead of just trying to pick what you think are the best people or uh, manage in such a way where <clears throat> you just get rid of the ones you don't want to work with, kind of management thinking, instead create a system where basically everybody can be successful. Uh, I took this to heart and went back to my system and uh, just started working with a class, one of the classes I had. And I had never been able to get a result better than oh, about oh, 10 to 15 percent of the kids getting A's. And I thought, you know, what, what do I have to lose? And so I'm going to start using Deming management theory in my classes. Well, at the end of that year, I, I had about 135 students that I worked with. And out of that 135 students, I think about 130 of them had A's. And it wasn't because I dumbed down the system or made standards different. I, I learned to manage differently using Binning's kind of concepts and theories. And uh, <clears throat> I'll never forget, as soon as I pushed the button and turned in my grades, about five minutes later, the principal was in my room. He said, Langford, what are you doing? You're destroying the whole grading system. And I said, well, you know, thank you very much. So, <laughs> uh, but it was such a transformation of not only my thinking, but how I managed those kids 
that pretty soon another teacher said, can I learn to do that? Another, another, another. And then by 1992, we had hundreds of people coming from all over the world to this tiny little school in Alaska because they wanted to find out the secret. It was the secret sauce. And that's when Dr. Deming said, look, you've done, you've done it at this school. And so we need you to become a consultant and start training schools all over. So that's when I started Langford International in 1992 and I started doing a lot of training. <clears throat> and uh, actually, Australia, I worked in Australia for about 15 years and had over a thousand schools there at one point sending people to training. Hmm. So it's still today, I'm doing the same, <laughs> same consulting work, same training. And uh, Deming is so old now, it's new again. And uh, people are now just trying to find out, you know, what is this and what, how does, how does it affect what we do? So, well, that Mr. Langford, that's a great story. And um, so you actually got to meet Dr. Deming and I guess knew him. And, and I think I read where he died in maybe 1993. Yeah. 93. I worked with, yeah, I worked with him until 1993. So, and he was still working up till the, Till the yeah, day he two weeks, died. Two weeks before he died, he was giving a four-day seminar. <laughs> so wow. that was that was the other thing that blew my mind was uh, when I went to see him, he was 86. And you know, think of your field or anybody's field. Who who goes to hear somebody get a four-day seminar that's 86 years old? I mean, it's just it's just mind-blowing. And then to go and to have somebody with that level of intellect and capability at that age, it, it was just unheard of. Still is today. So so you said, you know, Demings is so old that he's new again. Can you take us just a little, take us through his journey and his career, how he got started and uh, what his influence was? Uh, sure. So he was born in Iowa, and uh, then his family moved to Powell, Wyoming, actually, and lived in a one-room building there. He ended up going to the University of Wyoming and I think got a degree in statistics. But he ended up working at uh, <clears throat> Western Electric Corporation, and that's where he met Dr. Schuhart. And Schuhart had been tasked to try to improve productivity at Western Electric Corporation. And uh, Deming became one of his sort of disciples or people or, you know, he learned from Schuhart. Um, Deming went on to have a career in applied statistics, et cetera, and was very prominent in World War II, along with Schuhart and many of the other quality leaders at the time, uh, improving our war production of, you know, tanks, planes, et cetera. In fact, after the war, the Japanese were so convinced that this is the reason we had won the war was our ability to produce high quality uh, uh, tanks and planes, et cetera, that when Deming was asked to come to uh, Japan to help with the census in 1948, I think it was, uh, the Japanese Union of Science and Engineers invited him to come and give a speech because they knew of Deming's work um, in war production. And uh, that's what started his work in Japan. And Deming found some very willing learners in Japan, and they listened to what he said, do this, and within five years, you'll be back on the world's stage 
producing goods and services. And uh, <clears throat> Deming always said they beat, they beat his uh, prediction. It happened quicker than they thought. Well, the world didn't really take notice until 1980. And that's when a, a NBC white paper film, uh, Japan Can, Why Can't We, came out. And the star of that was Deming because uh, they went to Japan to try to find out the Jap Japanese secret why uh, Japanese cars were lasting longer than ours. They were producing more than ours. They just had a better quality vehicle. And uh, when they got to Japan, the Japanese said, well, you know, it's Deming and he lives in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so that's that's how he sort of burst on the management scene. And from that point, 1980, until he died, uh, people who were flocking there from all over the world. And you, you have to get perspective that uh, I remember talking with uh, the CEO of Ford Motor Company. He said that at the time when they started working with Deming, I think like 1981 or something, they figured they had about two years left where they were going to be out of business. If they didn't understand what Deming was trying to teach them. Uh, Xerox said the same thing. They, they figured they had less than a year that the Japanese were making and selling copy machines cheaper than Xerox could make them. <laughs> so yeah, you don't have I, much of a business manager, manager to realize you're not going to be in business long if that's the case. I had heard that that Ford, around that time that Ford was making an automobile and some of the maybe the transmissions were being built in Japan and some were being built in America and that the the ones built in even though they both were to scale or, or they they both met the 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 standards that the ones in Japan were s so much more to standard that the Americans would wait to uh, to buy a Ford car that had a Japanese transmission well, in it, and that was because of dimming. There's more to that story because what prompted it is that the Japanese, I think, at the time were offering like a three-year warranty on their transmissions, and, and in America. We had like a three-month warranty, <laughs> and so that's what caused them. They actually got Japanese vehicles and tore them apart and did all these sophisticated measurements to try to figure out how could this happen. Well, in America, we had specification limits that said, okay, for instance, if you're drilling a hole in a transmission or something, it has to be within these limits, right? And so they measure the American transmissions and then they'd narrow the, or measure the Japanese transmissions and, and both were in the spec within specification limits. They couldn't understand that Deming had taught the Japanese to continually work for basically perfection and get closer and closer and closer to well, what does that mean long term in a in a transmission? Well if the hole is perfect, right, it doesn't wear out as quickly. So you can offer a longer uh, warranty because you're not going to have to use it, right? So it took a long time for American managers to start to understand, well, how do, how do we get towards perfection? We might not ever get there, but we're going to get closer and closer and closer to that target. And the further we get away from that target, the greater the losses associated with that. It's called the Taguchi loss function. So, hmm. so – Post-World War II, 
Deming goes to Japan, has a big influence on on them. You know, they have that great decades of success, and then we write the paper in the 80s. What happened in the U.S. between World War II and in the 80s? Why did we fall so far behind if we had those ideas from Deming that helped our war production in the beginning? Why why did we kind of lose sight of those techniques, or were they just not as distributed as they needed to be? Well, uh, there's there's a lot of theories on that, but uh, I think one of the most prominent reasons is that uh, World War II production was primarily being done by women who worked well together, worked in teams, worked in groups, uh, and so they took to understanding that I'm building this airplane because my husband might be flying it in the South Pacific. It had a much bigger purpose and, and depth about the job that they were doing. It wasn't just the job itself. So World War II ends and <clears throat> all the servicemen come back and who moves into top management positions? Well, all the officers who had been you know, around the world and what management theory did they have? military management, right? My way or the highway, and I give the orders around here, and this is the way we're going to do it around here. So gradually, <clears throat> uh, dimming thinking or quality thinking sort of started to go by the wayside. And the other thing that was happening is we were basically the only, about the only country in the world that wasn't somehow damaged yeah. by the war. So our manufacturing was all in place, and uh, it wasn't about quality, it was about quantity. How much could we produce? Because if it said made in USA on it, it, it sold anywhere in the world. In fact, there's a story about a town in uh, Japan that changed their name to Yusa so they could put on stuff made in Yusa. Wow. Your, yeah. your, sto your story about the, uh, about the women making the parts, you know, that's, that's, that's my, what I do. Uh, if I start ironing a shirt, my wife, she takes it away from me because I, I do it so poorly. And she says, well, people are going to think that I did that. So she <laughs> she takes it away from me and does it, ends up doing it herself. But anyway, I, I digress. Yeah. So that that management system went into place and was taught uh, prolifically in colleges of business and management schools, et cetera. And uh, which Deming hated those schools <laughs> because they he said they they were teaching him a false doctrine of how to produce things. Well, it, it didn't come home to roost until 1980 when the Japanese started basically taking over every one of our markets. And uh, and we and it took us about 10 years to start to figure out how to compete again on that level. But they had to go back to Deming to understand why and how. So take us forward, I guess, since that era in the 1980s, uh, the effect that Deming has had. How has it changed um, kind of our management systems in the U.S.? Yeah, so, you know, virtually every corporation in the world now has to be has to operate off of a quality basis that Deming brought to the world. And it's it's so prevalent now that it's just the norm. <laughs> if you don't operate with a high degree of quality, uh, you're, you're not going to be in business. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Um, 
I took a group of students to visit a, I, I won't name the company, but a prominent computer company was making computers. And uh, they had a they had a defect free rate of about 82%, which meant, you know, 18% of everything they make is trash at the end of the, the line. And uh, <laughs> the CEO asked my students, hey, well, how'd you like your tour and everything else? And one of my high school students said, I don't see how you guys stay in business. And uh, sure enough, two years later, they were completely out of business, no longer making computers because the Japanese were making computers at 99.9% at .9 defect free rate. So change the situation, you get a different result. We we associate, you know, dimming with PDCA or, or PDSA that we that we that's what we use here in, in our Baptist management system. Is he is that true? Is he the one who really formalized that method? Yeah, PDCA, Plan Do Check Act, was what uh, Dr. Schuhart originally came up with in the 1920s. And from what I understand, that the average worker at that time had about an eighth grade education. So he came up with this very simple process where he could actually get workers to start to improve their own work. And it was Plan Do Check Act. Deming took that and what he discovered that people weren't thinking enough about what was going on. And he changed it slightly to PD, Plan Do Study Act, PDSA, because he wanted people to get to the study part and think, okay, did this work? Did it not? Why didn't it work? What changes do we need to make? What did we learn from this? And Deming always called it a learning cycle. Some people try to compare it to uh, the scientific method or but the scientific method is not about, uh, we don't use that to try to improve nature. <laughs> we just use that as a way to study, you know, what's going on. Where Deming was all about improvement cycles. And what can we learn from this? And how can it be applied? And what does it mean for us? So, so Obviously, you've had a lot of success taking the principles of dimming and applying them to the educational uh, sector. Uh, we always say that we're we're new in the continuous improvement journey in healthcare. Uh, what can you tell us about, uh, you know, how to adapt a system that, uh, you know, some of the people that we approach in healthcare say, well, we're not manufacturing, we can't do it that way. What can you tell us about your experience with adapting something, I guess, that originated with manufacturing or, or seemed to, um, to, you know, more of these um, not social, but service-based industries. Yeah, I can, I can tell you're relatively new to it because it's not continuous improvement, it's continual improvement. And Deming made that distinction very clear that it's a discontinuous journey, right? Um, it's really not possible to do continuous improvement with humans because <laughs> it would mean that you were you are just constantly changing everything. And psychologically, we just can't handle that much change. So it's a discontinuous process. And that's where PDSA comes in. You do a PDSA, you learn something, you apply that to the system. And then one of the phrases I learned from Deming that's just been magical was let it run. <laughs> Right. So you make this change and you got to let it run 
And then you got to monitor the statistical data long enough to understand is it working, is it not working? You know, what did we learn from that? Did it, did it work? And then we get to a point where we run another PDSA and we say, okay, we think we can get to another level of uh, whether that's uh, customer service or whether that's time on task or whatever it might be. We think we can we can move to another level and the act part is can you standardize that then right so now we we've, we've learned how to improve these processes to such degree to degree now we're going to standardize this this is going to be the way we're going to operate uh for, forever basically until we find another level of performance the, the difference is in, in even in medicine is that people typically don't think about changing or looking to improve things until they have to, <laughs> right? Until you have a catastrophic, you know, somebody dies or this happens or something else. Oh, okay, wait, I guess we better take a look at this. <laughs> Where dimming taught people, no, you need to continually always have an attitude of, we're gonna keep looking at everything basically forever and provide better and better service and, and, and products. So. It, it seems to me, you know, that the the PDSA cycles, and you talk about letting them run, and then looking at the numbers, looking at the statistics. It seems like, you know, you can't have PDSA without process behavior charts or run charts. It seems like those two go hand in hand, and and it seems to me that that any organization that that's wanting to improve that gets down to the nitty gritty you, you need to you need to know how to think and do pdsas and you also need to know how to look at the numbers to number one see you know is the process stable is it improving and if not how, how do you go about to improve it so yeah that, it's, it's, yeah uh, one of the gifts that uh Deming brought to the world was a special cause and common cause variation so yes, you're right. In, unless you see the voice of the process somehow, and and see that, and then if you have a special cause, you treat it like a special cause uh, versus system causes, and, and thinking about you know how that works, and that's really a simplified version of uh, the statistical variation that Deming brought the world that he he learned from Dr. Schuhart way back in the 1920s. But uh, yeah, I run into a lot of organizations that they're trying to improve without understanding variation. And it's like, you know, just beating your head against the wall. Or it's in a very, very expensive process of trial and error. Oh, we're just gonna try this or we're gonna try that. And, but you have no theory of knowledge that's guiding uh, your actions about how, you, how you're doing that experiment and working that through. So, I mean, that's where Deming brought <clears throat> his theory of profound knowledge, which consisted of understanding systems thinking, uh, understanding statistical variation, understanding the psychology of the people you're affecting by changing that system, and, and what is your theory about how you operate. And I always add neuroscience to that. How does the human brain actually process information? Because if you understand systems thinking and you got humans working in a system, wouldn't we want to change the system in such a way that it's compatible with the human brain and how 
how thinking actually takes place and what's ha what happens. And uh, <clears throat> so that, you know, his theory, his uh, system of profound knowledge is probably, it, it, profound means deep, right? And it's so simple and so clear, but it then takes a lifetime to apply and, and to work through. And, that, and that's and that's why it's applicable to any field. Whether it's, you know, well, David, education. Let me, let me ask a question, David, as we kind of come we're coming near and in a couple questions. Uh, if someone wanted to challenge their their thinking around uh, around management, around leadership, um, what would be the the one dimming book? Would it be out of the crisis? What what would be the one book that you would encourage them to pick up? No, I would I would start with the new economics. That was the last book he he wrote. Yeah. He was challenging, uh, you know, industry, government, education, all fields, and you know, I would start with that. Um, I do a lot of executive coaching now with managers around the country. And uh, that's what I use as my textbook. We just take a chapter every two weeks and work through that. And it just blows people's minds when you start thinking about what Deming was talking about and how it's applied to whatever field you're working in today. Well, you know, here, here's a great example of that. I always get tickled as you as new books come out on a regular basis. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's not new under the sun. You know, as the as the saying goes, and I was looking at a quote this morning from Deming, and uh, I'll read it. It says, "The greatest waste is failure to use the abilities of people to learn about their frustrations and about the contributions th that they are eager to make." Now we hear that today on a pretty constant basis, but he was saying this several decades ago. Yeah, sometimes when I when I start doing customer service work with even school districts and, and stuff, one of the techniques that I use, um, like one of the districts I was working with, you'd call up and the person answering the phone would say school. And they're, they're just and it's like stunned silence, right? There is no thinking of quality or customers or service or, you know, how we work that through. But one of the ways I start working with those people is to get them to think about if we were to run this place and we were to do the worst possible job of answering the phone or setting up a meeting or uh, inducting new patients, you know, what would we do? And then we'll do some kind of a fish bone diagram. Or, and usually people just start erupting and they say, well, we do this or we wouldn't do that or we wouldn't do this or we wouldn't return phone calls. And and then you write all those things down and invariably people will look at that and they'll say, well, that's what we're doing now. <laughs> exactly. Here's a, a little story I'll bring us to a close on. I was in the fall of 2019. I was in Japan with a, a leader that was highly regarded at Toyota for a little over 40 years. And at lunch one day, he talked about dimming quite often, uh, not with me prompting him. He just brought it up. And I asked him, I said, uh, you know, after you reflect back on your career, what would be the one thing that you would say one of the biggest, most impactful things that you learned, uh, whether it be from Dimming or whether it be from Toyota and all those years? He didn't even blink an eye. He said PDCA, 
And I said, oh, and he said, it took me 40 years to learn, 10 years for each letter to learn what that means. And I thought he was joking and I started laughing and he stopped me. And he said, I'm not making a joke. <laughs> and and he was saying that he was really learning about PDCA and the thinking at a profound level. And he was very indebted uh, to Dr. Deming for teaching him that. That's yeah, a great we have, story. We all owe him a tremendous debt. <laughs> well, on, on that note, uh, 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 David Langford or Dr. Langford, I'm guessing. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing us your reflections of Dr. Deming and how his theories and how his thinking around management and, and leading around purpose, people, and process is still impactful today in 2022 and still impactful in healthcare in 2022. So just on behalf of Baptist, I just want to say a big thank you for your time and your effort and the energy that you're contributing. Yeah, thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dr. White.